It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, here's your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Thank you for coming back to Preachers on Preaching. This week I speak with Claudio Carvalhes. Claudio is an associate professor of homiletics at McCormick Theological Seminary. He's also a reverse missionary, having been sent by the Presbyterian Church from Sao Paulo, Brazil, to Fall River, Massachusetts. Since coming to the United States, Claudio has become a professor. He is a deep thinker, preaching from a liberationist perspective and animated, joyful man who is on fire with a passion for the gospel and for God's people. This is going to be a fun and interesting, lively conversation. If you know of anyone who would be a good guest for Preachers on Preaching, please email me at preachers at christiancentury.org. Now, here's my conversation with Claudio. We begin with a question that I've been wanting to ask all of my guests, and I decided just to jump right in with it this time, and that question is running contrary to some of the rosy pictures of call narratives that we often are told or hear or tell ourselves. I've noticed for myself, at least, that my call to ministry came from a place of pain and brokenness, and I asked Claudio what he thought of that idea and what is wrong with him that he would feel God calling him to be a pastor. Claudio, I have this theory that I want to test on you. You'll be the first person that I've, I've tested this theory with. Bring My theory on. is this, that we have a uh, romanticized understanding of call, mm-hmm. where oftentimes when I hear people tell their call story, and preachers love to do that, what I hear is a happy tale of, of joy and triumph. Um, and I wonder sometimes how accurate that is and whether or not our call, and certainly this is true biblically, might be rooted oftentimes in, in things that have gone awry or in pain in our lives. So my question is for you, when you think about your call to ministry, um, what's wrong with you that you wanted to become a minister? What, what went awry in your life that caused you to get to this point? Right. Uh, well, this is a great Great question, and and if you look at at the, the uh, you know if you look at the Bible and even at the uh, history of the church, we 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 see how much like a, a call is something to wrestle with, to run away from, right? To be scared of. Um, for me, for me, it was mostly a a, a survival, a way of surviving. It was. To be in ministry was a way of being in the world. To feel that I was uh, included, that I that I was not uh, in the fear of of not belonging. Because I when 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 I I grew up, it was a very um, poor um, life that we had there, and so my first toy came from the church. Uh, you know the, the the church gave me food and and to my family and and so there was this deep sense of belonging that my my entire life was uh the whole narrative of my life was around uh the church and 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 because the world was too scary i i think the uh the church was this somewhat this shelter from the storm 
And so instead of being on the streets, I I had the church to be inside. And this was in Sao Paulo? Yeah, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And was it a Presbyterian church? Yeah, it was a small Presbyterian church. Was that unusual in. for there to be? Are there a lot of Presbyterians in Brazil? Is it? No, no. Uh, when I grew up, I mean... Brazil was mostly uh, a Roman Catholic church after the uh, uh, invasion, and and when I grew up, people did, wouldn't even know how to say Presbyterian, and uh, so pretty much the uh, identity of the Protestants at that time was over against the Catholic Church. Now it's very different, but from uh, from growing up, it was very strange to be in a, in a Protestant church. Was there a dynamic that you experienced? So you went into the church for protection, for sanctuary as a child, to be safe, to be cared for. What happened to cause the church to send you out? And this is the beautiful thing about uh, uh, faith and and church, right? I mean, faith is a call away. It is deeply inside of you, but it's away from you. You have to go out of yourself and to to go into the world. And I think that was... um, the fantastic sense of both being part of a place that I could dream from. And then from that place, I was always pushed away to go and, 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 and preach this gospel. So I grew up with this very evangelistic heart. So I, and, uh, when my father was able to give me a little globe, I was, would like hold it with my arms and cry over it and, and wanting to do something and go out. And, and so it was, I think it was because of this way of being loved that somewhat I felt that I, I had the, uh, the possibility of doing something else, of going away. You've characterized yourself as a uh, reverse missionary. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? It was, uh, you know, it, Brazil was always a place where missionaries would come to uh, uh, preach the gospel as if there was no gospel there, right? And, and, and so all the, when the missionaries come and the churches start, so then there is a, a reverse movement of people from, you know, from all across the globe, but in my case, like from Brazil, coming back to United States. So I was one of the first missionaries to come back to uh, uh, United States within the, the Presbyterian Church. And was that an actual assignment from the Presbyterian Church? Like, you, here's your mission field, you're assigned oh, yeah. to go? Yeah, it was a fantastic thing from the Presbyterian of Southern New England. They wanted, there was this vision that this pastor had, uh, and and that to start a ministry with the Portuguese-speaking community in Fall River, uh, Massachusetts, and so they, they they wanted to reach out to these people, but they didn't have the language. So the presbytery there with the presbytery of São Paulo uh, decided to have this partnership, and I came. Uh, but I thought there was a church there, but it wasn't any. Oh, so you were called to start the church? Yeah, but I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, so it was pretty scary and. Uh, I stayed there for five years, but for two and a half years, for two years, um, I had to struggle with it until it actually uh, started. Were you evangelizing to people who knew about Presbyterianism in the Portuguese-speaking community in Fall River? I knew there were Portuguese-speaking people in Fall River. I didn't know there were Presbyterians in Fall River. It's all Congregationalists up there, right? right? Right, right. But then there's this fantastic thing where you have like the... uh, U.S. Church, 
having a Lebanese Presbyterian congregation and forever receiving missionaries from Brazil to work with the Azorians. <laughs> so, <laughs> and people from Cape Verde and Brazilians as well. Uh, and, and so that was the, uh, the mix. And then I decided that we would work with the unchurched people because most of the people there were already uh, Christians. Why, why would I go there? So I either have to have this uh, uh, message that would tell people who were going to the Catholic Church that they were going to hell or I have to do something else. So I decided to do something else and then work with uh, people who are unchurched. So you were introducing Christianity to people for the first time. You weren't trying to... to steal people away from the Catholic Church. No, not at all. I did mean, the Presbyterian Church that you grew up in in Sao Paulo, did it track according to sort of our American definitions of ev evangelical, mainline, liberal? Did it fall into one of those categories? Yeah, I, I think I think you, you, can, you can say that. Not exactly how it is, it is here, but you would have most of the liberal, most of the conservatives, um, we wouldn't have the evangelicals as we have here. Okay. Uh, but but now you have the the people like we call the evangelicals more like the gospel kind of uh, the charismatics uh, and Pentecostals. Then you have charismatic Pentecostals, new Pentecostals. Yeah. And and I mean it has div uh, uh, diversified in so many ways. It's so different with the uh, you know the theology of prosperity gospel going like growing by lips and bounds. There in Brazil. Oh yeah, a lot. When you came to the United States, how did your preaching change from preaching in Brazil to preaching in Fall River? Was there, did you go through some sort of shift for yourself or did oh, it stay? Oh, my brother. <laughs> yeah, because see, language, uh, it's, it's, Wittgenstein used to say that the, the language um, is the limit of your world. Yeah, the limit of my language is the limit of my world. Exactly yeah. it, exactly it. Uh, and, and so when, when, when you go to another country, you pretty much uh, are turned into a baby. And you have sounds and you have uh, uh, hope that people would understand you and you have your you know your gestures and your eyes and you say yes to what you have no idea what you're saying yes to and so for me to be able to start um speaking uh publicly and 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 preaching so were you preaching in english in in that church that you were starting no, it was it was portuguese all okay. the time yeah yeah it was portuguese uh but you did start speaking sometimes in, preaching Spanish, in english also elsewhere right after yes because then i would have to visit the churches who were supporting us just to raise money and so i'd have to go you just said to be in a new country is to be a baby mm -hmm. to be learning the language my wife is a psychotherapist and she was telling me about donald winnicott I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with his yeah. work. But, yeah, yeah. So Winnicott says that, I, if I understand it, in infancy, the baby does not recognize herself as independent of the mother and is actually coming to self-understanding by the expression on the mother's face. So when the mother looks accepting or happy, the baby understands itself as accepted or happy or as the world as safe. So... To carry the metaphor forward, in your infancy in America, how were you seen? Did you feel, did the church see you well? Man, you, that's wonderful. That's a fantastic question. It's so loaded, too, because then, oh, yeah. yes, I, I was 
coming to terms with a recognition of, of a mother who was not my mother, who I had a hard time understanding as my mother, who I had a hard time even accepting as this place, as my place. And, and, and seeing the, the painful experiences of my people, mostly undocumented people, uh, 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 living in this country and going through so much. Uh, 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 so it was, it, was, it was very hard to recognize how do I recognize myself in, in somebody else's land and somebody else's place and somebody else's language? So it's always wrestling. So Gloria Anzaldúa uh, talks about borderlands. So it was much later that I realized that I've been always uh, 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 within borderlands, trying to figure out who I am by way of looking at that which is not mine. And to people who are not mine, uh, to situations and symbols and culture that are not mine, and and so it's it it, it stretched me in, in in many ways. So all this longing for 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 something that I that I have lost and I don't know what it is. But then I realized that in this whole process of me being here, uh, several things happened. Then then I I, I realized that. I do not, where do I belong? Uh, I don't belong here fully, but I don't belong back to Brazil fully either. You were changed by I leaving. was, yes. And, and, and now where do I belong? So it was always this, this living in exile. And, 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 and I, even though I, I have all of the gifts of having documents and all of that, which is very different from my own people uh, uh, and a very different experience. But then I realized that even growing up in Brazil, I was growing up with a face of, of, of a mother, and then talking about a country that has uh, hidden the face of, of my true mothers, so to speak, which was the, 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 the First Nations, mm -hmm. was uh, um, a part of me that is, that is black, that is, that is being erased because of racism. So, the, so extending this Winnicott metaphor, the mother of Brazil herself had a mask on. Yeah. Because the mask of colonialism. Exactly. Exactly. So I've always been trying to, to reach back to that which I don't know what it is. And in the reaching, does that track in terms of your longing for God? Yes, indeed. And this has been the most beautiful thing. And, and uh, Edward Said in Orientalism says that, uh, reminding Gramsci, he would say that we, uh, uh, we have to do an inventory of our lives. So doing an inventory of, of my life, it is when I started to figure out that there are these people, this language, this wealth of, of traditions that are there, that are mine, that has been hidden uh, away from me, that have been uh, uh, denied to me. So here I am once in Bahia, the heart of Brazil, where 95% of the population is black, and I go under the market where the, uh, the Africans would pl be placed right after they arrived and as slaves and so when i'm go there i start to hear these voices singing and so i see there are ancestors doing i mean 300 years of resistance that is fully there and so i'm part of this and so this part is is giving me back life mm -hmm. and so what i have inside of me when i look at at my mother i look at my mothers and my fathers and and the many voices that i speak with now so uh, as as i am as we all are a sense of a, a, of a pentecostal uh and uh, uh um 
this this many voices speaking in and through us and so that's what is giving me a sense of recognition so now i realize that uh, i am mostly by knowing what is not mine mm. so you came into a self-understanding yeah. via somebody else being a stranger in a strange land You moved from this church start in preaching to a congregation that you were forming mm. of immigrants in Fall River into academia. How has your preaching changed as you've gone from preaching to people, and I know I'm speaking broadly here, but people who are economically marginalized to affluence? Or maybe at the same time you were preaching to affluence also as you were, as you were traveling and raising funds for that church. But how is preaching to affluence different Oh, this is so uh, um, good too, Matt. Uh, see, my 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 preaching has changed so much. I learned preaching by my my brother. The first book on preaching that he gave, I was fourteen years old when I uh, thirteen years old when I did my first preaching, and it was he gave me a book of Spurgeon. Oh, John Spurgeon uh, exactly, and so I was like Moody, and Spurgeon was like the, my source at that time, and 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 wanted to be an evangelist. Also, this Argentinian evangelist Luis Palau and Billy Graham and all of that. So imagine going from that uh, uh, to to the the uh, 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 academia and all of that. What what I think what happened to me because of liberation theology, I I. I learned that I, I have to have a commitment. I have to belong somewhere. And so I'm always speaking from a place. It doesn't matter where I go. I'm always speaking from a place. And this place is always the place with the poor. Okay. So you're rooted no matter where you no go. No matter where I am, I'm going to speak from, from the experience of the poor, of whom I am, of the people that I belong to, that I go and, and, and live with and try to listen to their voices. So everywhere I go, I, I speak from, from that place. So if, if I speak to affluent church, I speak from that place, calling them uh, uh, to, to, to pay attention to, to, to those people. So this, is, so this is the place of, uh, that's my pulpit. That's where I, I, I always preach and write and, and pray from. So it's very different when you are preparing your sermon from your office or you are preparing your sermon from... Uh, a dumpster. If, if you have homeless people around you, you're going to preach something else. If you're doing your book of worship and you're praying from a nice hotel with a group of people, your prayer will be one. If you're in a refugee camp, your prayer will be something totally else. So when, when I'm preaching, I'm always trying to bring people to those places of of, of despair, those places where it's hard to live. Do you find when you <clears throat> preach to wealthy liberal congregations, intellectually they know this already, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So is it a matter of, <clears throat> of shining a light on something, of awakening people, of reminding them? <sighs> it's pretty much a uh, class struggle, Matt. And I am not... I don't know what to to do actually to <clears throat> because they do know they're smart people, uh, but it is how we wh what we have done to the gospel so that we can stay where we are. 
what we have done to the gospel yes. so that we can stay where we are. Yeah. And what have we done? Exactly. We, we, we've done, we, we've made this gospel who is pretty much a, a gospel of, um, of, of revolution, of uh, insurrection, of, of, of transformation. We have tamed it to a point that we pretty much uh, don't have any edge. It's like when I teach my students, I say, when was it the last time that you went to a, to listen to a sermon that you left the church saying, I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I can be a Christian. This is too hard. This asking me too much. I mean, we don't have that anymore. On the contrary, if you're preaching something that your member don't, uh, uh, don't, your members don't like, they will come to you and say, you stop preaching about that or we are leaving. And we are so scared of our churches losing members. Uh, they're, they're pretty much like serving uh, uh, a, a, a culture that is pretty much, has pretty much uh, uh, built itself inside of this class uh, 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 cul-de-sac. So if preachers are chaplains to the class that they find themselves in, or if middle class or upper middle class preachers are chaplains <clears throat> to their class, how... Does one bring a prophetic voice without imperiling themselves professionally, or is that an impossibility? That's pretty much an impossibility. Yeah, because I've I've seen friends who have done it, and they 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 lose their lo their jobs pretty easily. On 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 the other hand, to walk with the congregation to a different place, it it is a challenge. I I'm, I don't I don't think it's impossible. But it's not a matter of just coming in and dropping an anvil on no, people. No. Yeah. Every worship, if we believe what we say, it is an encounter with God, right? Yeah. And if it is an encounter with God, there's no way that you're not going to be transformed. That very prayer that you're saying, that living authentically with God, something's going to happen, yeah. right? Something is going is to change you and move you. Uh, but the, 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 that preaching, it's, it is a way of dreaming of showing the way but then we have to go walk into that place and that is when it's things get harder because then it then it demands commitment and de demands uh, uh, uh challenges and and demands that i don't know if we are ready to uh, to make especially the uh, you know uh, 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 the new generations i don't know how much of this commitment can be made to go to those places and i wonder how much matt we we have the um how much of our passion is there yeah uh, so when when i when i teach my, my students about preaching. I said, I, I don't want you to lecture. I don't want you to go there and read six pages and, 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 and count and just be like, be yourself and they say, oh, don't turn much to the left or to the right or move your pages evenly so, uh, so that like, in a way that people will not even see it. I don't care. Do you? I you, care about their passion. That's what I'm passionate What are you passionate about? What is the, the, what is the life that is holding you alive? What is the death that you're dealing with right now? So then preach that. And tap into that, right? So that it's not so yeah. much an explosion of me, 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 but rather oh. this is the thing that is lighting me up and here and now I will apply it. Exactly, and, and, and I'm more interested in what lights you up that is not yours only. 
Yeah. That is that is that is your own way of engaging with what is not yours. Chris Wyman says that we have to use, and he's talking about writing a poem, not preaching a sermon, but it's the same. The the, the idea holds. We have to use the personal to illuminate the universal, yeah. not just to expand the personal. And that's a problem for preachers. I think we can. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's so interesting to see that, that there's such a difficulty in terms of what is personal, what is not. But you have to learn how to use yourself in order to be authentic without drowning a congregation with yourself. Um, it's hard to, because I think, to be honest, preaching attracts a strain of narcissism uh, or, or attracts narcissists and then promotes a strain of narcissism, right? I mean, nobody is, very few people in my experience, myself included, are getting up to talk to hundreds of people because they don't like the sound of their own voice and they don't want to be seen. Most <laughs> preachers wind up in the pulpit right, at some right. level because they, we want to be seen. Yes. Um, so I think we have to, my counsel to, to young preachers is always, and I give it to myself and learned it the hard way, is you got to come to terms with your own brokenness, your right. own neediness. Um, right. Because if you don't, you'll, you, those things will be in the pulpit with you and right. that's not why you're there. You're there to point to the cross and to point to Jesus, not to excavate your own need. Right on, brother. Right on. This, this is, I mean, what, what, what you're saying, it's, it's exactly it. I mean, we are, all of us need some sense of, of narcissism to do what we do. Yeah. As you said, you said very well. I mean, we do, otherwise we won't be doing this at all. Right. I think that the shift is when you're doing that and then you become this figure where all of these projections are placed, but then you return these projections back to them, right? And through the cross, as you said, and then, and then instead of receiving it as if we are the ones, then we, we place ourselves in the same place. It's hard as a preacher, that's so hard, hard. To, oh, not, so hard. to not let yourself get inflated by the praise right. and to not let yourself get damaged by the criticism and the hostility sometimes. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And to listen for the truth in both, too, is, yeah, that's, that's, that's so <laughs> it's hard. tricky. It is, it is a, an art of every day, right? Yeah. And especially when we are uh, uh, in a vulnerable place, yeah. when our sense of evaluating things, of discerning is, in a, is lower, right? And, and then we need to be way more careful. That's, so that's why I think to preach is always a, a collective act, right? It has to be, uh, it takes a village to preach. Yeah. Don't you find when you when you travel and you're preaching, I would assume as a professor, you're on the road a fair amount. You're not preaching to the same congregation week in and week out. And it's so it takes years to build resonance with a congregation. Right. So just to drop right. in and preach a sermon, in my experience, I don't do a whole lot of that, but a little bit. And in my experience, it very rarely goes well. And right. Right. You're right. I mean, that's why I... I mean, performatively, it can go well. But in terms of like actually feeling the Holy Spirit bouncing back and forth and around the dialogical right. part of preaching, that, that is like any relationship, it doesn't just happen. Right. But there are some times that it does for some miracles. Yeah. That especially when you have a, a, a group of people that reports back, that the preaches with you. Yeah. That is that is that something else can happen. That are not just in a passive. Yes, yeah. they're not like listening to you with this blank uh, look, and you have no idea if they're even listening to you. Uh, but 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 that's why when I go on the road, I just want them to remember a feeling. 
A feeling. A feeling. Yeah. I, I don't I want them to remember uh, and anything special or remarkable that I said because I don't have much anything remarkable to say. But but just just this feeling that it was a, it was a precious time. Mm-hmm. It was a time that God spoke to me. I don't even know how, but God spoke to all of us. That's what I want for me too when I go to this place. That's a terrific goal. Rather <laughs> than it being you know, the product of your own erudition and brilliance, right? Exactly, um, exactly. So do you place yourself theologically in a particular camp? Would you, do you characterize yourself as a, as a liberation theologian? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Liberation the- theology is in, so in how my is, bones and how post-colonial is, theology and feminist theology and uh, um, queer theology. All of the theologies at the margins, that's where I belong. How is liberationist preaching distinct it distincts again where you start i mean if you are if you're doing black theology you have to start now where your kids are hurting when every night the parents don't know if their kids are coming back home if you are preaching from lib liberation theologies you have to start to think from where my gays and lesbians and queer people are are uh, hurting because of what society has done to uh, 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 to them i have to to preach from the place where my sisters uh, are preaching from my, my 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 black sisters are preaching and 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 living and so i have to listen to them uh, so that i can understand what god might be so i have to go to my uh latino latina community and 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 be with the undocumented people who are pretty much running uh this country on on their backs uh, and and then I have to listen to their cries, to how they've been exploited and abused. Uh, uh, so liberation theology is, is where I start. So we start where it hurts. Right. Man. So how does a um, middle class, upper middle class, white American mainline preacher, who you know read Gutierrez in seminary and is moved and wants to be in solidarity with liberationist movements, how do we? preach from that perspective without being cultural interlopers right that's a very good question too uh in some way i i think you have to to be part of it you have to learn i mean i i am not from here and i keep preaching about the african-american uh people and 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 uh, uh women's issues and, and but, but 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 that's because i i, I try to to, to be there with them and listen to them and, and, and figure out how they are doing it and how they are living and always know that I have a limit that I can only come to this point and mm-hmm. after that I don't. So I, so I think that's really good. So you have to, you, you can't just say these people are different from me, therefore no. I'm going to be arrested. No. And I think that there is a, a, a politically correct impulse to respect the autonomy, the strength, the independence of other groups that actually results in a real political quietism. Exactly. This is for me. It is another way of 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 of, of empowering uh, uh, racism. Yeah. Because and I think I think we have to. People like me have to then get in touch with our own, with our own marginalization is the wrong word. With our own brokenness and and fragility 
in or right i mean that has to start first that's where you start but that's you start to connect with those who are not part of your own people to see that your the the people who are hurting they are your people i mean unless i say every uh uh undocumented kid is my kid i'm not living this gospel unless every child that is being brutalized by police i i don't take them as my own kids i am not living this gospel until i don't call everyone who is queer my own people i'm not living this gospel and so as i so but that 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 takes a lot of 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 effort too because then you have to learn another language again you go to a foreign land to learn the language so you have to learn you you have to 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 read about their history you have to learn about their pain you have to listen to their cry and then stay with them stay a little longer with them and then you can say also this is my people and then we start to to fight each other's uh, 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 battle because uh, we don't have a language i was talking to uh, a friend of mine who like after baltimore this whole country was up in flames and i went to this uh, uh middle class white church and nothing was even mentioned not even in the prayers of the people it was mentioned and so trying to talk to them uh, uh one uh, uh one person said i don't think we have language yeah. i mean well but this is a good excuse. Absolutely. But I guess what I'm thinking is we may not have the language, but we all have the, because we're human and fallen, we all have the experience of suffering. And right. and some of us have, you know, enough m- material benefit and wealth to insulate ourselves. But, but I wonder if the place to start is to start, not to stay there, not to even make an equivocation or not, I mean, a false equivalency and say, that, right, the um, African-American people in Baltimore are hurting and, um, you know, I'm mortal and I have pain in my life. So here in, in Lincoln Park, I'm hurting too. Therefore, I understand what they're going through. That's, that's wrong. But I think for us to, for the church to, to understand itself not as strong, right, as weak, um, which it is right now, is a good place to begin. It is. And, and then, again, listening and listening and listening. I mean, I, I just uh, uh, finished reading uh, Between the World and Me yeah. by, by, by Coates. I mean, yeah. what he explains that his experience, I will never understand. I will never be able to be there. So even though we have a, a place in common in terms of our suffering, what he went through his life is way different than I than I did, and who will understand what was for me to be a shoe shining boy at eight years old in in Brazil? But there's something, as as you're saying, that that we can connect some places that we can create a kind of a theology of intersectionality that we can weave. It's all we are all uh, uh, into this fold. So we, there's this manifold of, of this one reality that we are living in very different ways. And I think the more we, we place ourselves in this vulnerable place, move away from our securities and say, well, let's see what this is. That's when we just start to begin to see what the pain of somebody else is and then becomes mine own. I remember when I was at Union, I was in this class uh, worship and, 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 uh, uh, and women. And I was accepted there. I was the only man there. And then I remember one day we did this uh, uh, ritual and I gave the final benediction. And I, I asked like 
three of my uh, sisters to let to read it and and tell me if I was doing something uh, uh, terrible and they said no you're okay but then when I did it this woman stands up and says Laura never forget her I said Claudia that was great but I wish you would have uh, you would have not done it and I said Laura but I did with all my heart with all my I worked like the entire week for this like three phrases and 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 I said no it's not the praise that I just didn't want you to do it and it was just at that point man, that I realized that as much as I also try I will not know so I I start with this irreducibility or this impossibility of me knowing somebody else that being established then I go read everything about them then I go eat their food I'm going to stay with them I'm going to listen to their cries and then I will start to try to figure out a language that will be a language that will make a, a connection between me and and these people even though all the while you're you're beginning with this assumption of humility right right that I I won't really know I, I can know more than I know but I won't really know exactly which is an interesting way also to think about proclaiming the gospel and having the audacity to to speak for God Karl Barth says as, as you know we have to first recognize that it, this is an impossible task. It, yeah. Preaching is impossible. Right. And then we have to recognize that it, we have to do it. Right? That's it. Exactly <laughs> yeah. it. We start by this impossibility, but then we do it anyways. Yeah. Because there's this grace. The, the same grace that makes it in, impossible, or shows to me how impossible it is, it is the same grace that demands me to do you it. You do it. Right. right. It's that paradox. Exactly. Let me ask you a question about performance in the pulpit. You oh. characterize yourself as both a preacher and a performer. And I'm wondering if you see a distinction between the two or how your gifts as a performer inform your style as a preacher. I saw uh, your interview with Otis Moss and, and how he said it, that preaching is performing because everything is performance in some ways. Right? What we're doing here is, is, is performance. Um, and I, I just wanted to dispel this this very poor, naive sense of performance that people are saying, oh, worship and preach is not performance. It is the preaching, the the, the gospel, or it is worship. No, well, in, in that place we are performing. And my performance is more like expanding the uh, 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 who we are. I'm kind of overstating ourselves. So you, you become bigger, fuller more dramatic i mean it's pretty much bringing to you what you see but you don't say what everybody knows but don't talk about so um how does a latino preacher talks about its uh heritage from um switzerland and scotland so one day i was preaching so i had all of the um the the geneva robes and then i took it off and i had this scottish outfit with the skirt and everything <laughs> just say and, and uh, the t-shirt saying i love scotland because that's what uh, 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 uh influenced me and, and created who i am a, a lot of that so when i'm doing it i'm just already showing what everybody knows but don't talk or, or not aware of it so you're enacting what is unsaid and what is buried exactly exactly so uh I tried to do what uh, this Mexican writer, uh, Octavio Paz, said once. Uh, I want people to think with my jokes and laugh with my thoughts. 
So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do, to expand the possibilities of metaphors, of, of symbols, and, and making things clearer and opaque, and, and, and have things... When, when, when I preach, I, I, I throw the, the, the papers. And you throw like, the papers? I throw the papers. I'm not like very carefully with one page under the other so that people won't see it. Uh, I, I, I heard about right. a sermon that you preached recently at McCormick in which you had a series of lights, like Christmas lights, oh, yeah. in your robe. Right. And when you mentioned being, you, you were using a text and talking about being on fire, right. and you would hit the switch and then you would become illuminated and then you would turn it off. And the person who told me about this said the remarkable thing for her was that you didn't refer to your prop at all. You just acted as if it were a normal thing for the preacher to be illuminated by Christmas lights on and off. <laughs> That's exactly it. It is already there. It's just to help people to... We are in, in this culture that the only thing that is proper to a Christian message is the proper thinking. So the only thing we have is words. And I mean... That's why you go, if you go to worship, if you understand what you hear, you have, you, you have worship. And, and I mean, for so many uh, group of uh, people, other cultures, it's not only what you, you hear. It, it is how your body moves. It's what is there. What is what's the dancing. There are other ways of reasoning this, this, this gospel, right? So what I'm trying to do is to use my body to reason this gospel. And so that's why it's awkward because it is not within the, the reasoning proper of our traditions. So when I'm using it, I'm trying to expand the possibilities of, of us seeing and hearing and feeling something else about the gospel. And so that's why I, I, I use other ways of, of... As opposed to it simply being an entirely intellectual matter. Exactly. It goes back to what you said earlier, that when you are done preaching, you want people to feel. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and I love when people come to me and say, oh, I remember when we were together and God blessed us. That's all I want to hear. Nothing else but what I said, what was the deepest thing that I said. No, because that we will never forget, remember. Just ask your, your, your congregants if they're going to remember your, your, your preaching last, last Sunday. Are they, what they're going to remember is this feeling, it's something that they have in their body. So there's a poet in, 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 in Brazil. I can't Adelia. remember my preaching last Sunday, and I wrote it. Even I just... Adélia Prado, this Brazilian poet, says that what the body loved, it made memory. So, oh, that's beautiful. So I, I want this gospel to be in our bodies, man. Then it is going to be there forever. Well, Claudio, I feel blessed by this conversation. That's what I'm taking away. Man, let me just say that you were a fantastic uh, 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 dialogue partner here. Thank you so much for being here and being a part of Preachers on Preaching. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>